0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element, Element, Element
2: FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNT-FM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show two indigenous directors that have made short films about the COVID nineteen pandemic and, and that are being featured and in the National Film Board of Canada online project called the Curve. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Connor McNally and also Cole Forrest. Ani, hello. go, <laughs> Ani. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Much appreciated. And um, whereabouts? Uh, oh, so Connor, you're you're in Edmonton.
0: Yeah, that's right. Or uh, known in Cree as a Missquichi hmm. Treaty Six territory.
2: Yeah, and and Cole, you're you're based in uh, the Big Smoke of Toronto.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm based in Toronto currently in my home territory of Nipissing First Nation.
2: So, guys, you were uh, approached. Were you approached by the NFB, or how did this whole project come about? Where you ended up being involved with it? Uh, let's start with Connor. Uh, Yeah, so, Koti
0: Savard, uh, who's a Cree Métis uh, producer with the NFB, Mm -hmm. she approached me in June, I believe it was, uh, asking if I had any ideas on how to make a film, um, but also adhering to, you know, the isolation, uh, COVID rules that, uh, we were all adhering to mm. back then, mm-hmm. <laughs> which are coming back into full force maybe now with the numbers sure. going up. Exactly. Um, so yeah, she, she approached me and I think she kind of, uh, you know, we have a history working together. And so she knows that I'm a, uh, jack of all trades, so to speak, mm. in terms of filmmaking where I can shoot my own stuff, I can edit it. Um, so I can really work in, in, in isolation. And so I, uh, yeah, I just pitched to this project about, uh, my brother's story and,
2: and she was into it fortunately. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. We're going to get to that story in a minute, but, uh, Cole, how about you? How did you end up involved with this?
1: Yeah. Uh, so in Ontario, um, the prompt was from where I am, uh, and the idea around that, like, uh, creating a story, um, mixing COVID into, like, the community where you're from. Like, how has that affected the community mm-hmm. where you're from? Uh, and so I had to, I submitted a uh, proposal, um, and luckily it was it was accepted, and it sort of just went from there.
2: Cool. And now you guys both submitted and, and eventually developed uh, two short five-minute films. Um, Connor, yours was called Very Present, and Cole, yours is called Nibzing. And, um, so, uh, Connor, you had started to tell us that the story is based around your brother. And, um, so it is a very interesting story about, uh, yes, about COVID, but also about how your brother uh, had a unique perspective on COVID specifically from his own experience, um, from being arrested and then incarcerated.
0: Yeah, well, he, um, yeah, I think it was back in 2012. He... Uh, he was arrested and, uh, he, he was put into uh jail I guess for a few nights and then um I guess part of his sentencing was house arrest. And so yeah, the I, I thought, you know, when when the NFB had approached me about making this film, I kind of thought that there would be interesting parallels between his experience uh under house arrest with uh COVID lockdown. And of course there's, you know, drastic differences as well. Um, you know, you don't have to report to a parole officer or have, uh, cops show up at your house in the middle of the night with guns drawn to make sure that you're sleeping there, uh, which did happen to him. Nice. So, you know, there's, there's, there's parallels, uh, nonetheless. And yeah, I thought it would be great to explore that and, and let my brother Riley, you know, um, tell his story and, and share it with, with, I guess now it's, you know, national or
2: <laughs> international. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so when you approached him with this idea, because it is really interesting that, you know, you, you chose this, what mm-hmm. did he think initially? Uh, my brother, (laughs) I I wouldn't say I had to twist his
0: arm, but, um, (laughs) when I approached him about it, he initially was perhaps a little bit reluctant just because the story is so close to him and so personal. Um, but you know, I, he, he took a few days to think it over and I think, um, you know, he obviously agreed to do it and i'm glad he did and i think in a lot of ways when we conducted the audio interview that mm. is in the film mm. you know in, in some ways i suppose it was maybe a little bit therapeutic for him to mm. to actually verbalize this experience and just lay it out on tape not really on tape but mm. on a on a marantz uh <laughs> digital recorder um but yeah i know it was uh it was it was a really positive experience my brother and I are really close we've mm-hmm. worked on lots of film projects together so he he knows my style and and as I was editing it I was showing mm-hmm. him where I was going with the film and and making sure he was comfortable with everything that was going to be included and you know it's it's the thing right when you're making a, a documentary about someone else if they're not happy with it then yeah I don't really see a point in sure. in doing it
2: right well, I'm glad to hear that he's, he's on board and he liked what you, you came up with as a final product. Yeah. And it, it is an interesting story, especially... What, what did you learn from this? What did I learn?
0: Well... I mean, I learned lots in the editing process, working with the NFB, mm. um, of course, uh, Cote, along with uh, another producer who has a tremendous amount of experience, David Christensen, mm. they you know, provided me with feedback uh, throughout the editing process and I think I learned a lot in that regard. Most of my films prior to this are very independent where i 'm kind of in a bubble. And, you know, of course I've received feedback from friends before, but to get feedback from, um, two quote unquote industry professionals, um, that was, that was a really, really good experience. And I know other filmmakers, uh, maybe don't always have that kind of positive, Mm. uh, experience with, you know, The man, so to speak with, (laughs) I know, I know the NFB is great. Um, but you know, other people don't have positive experiences occasionally, but I had a a really good experience and they were, you know, they, they would give me notes and they said, you know, take
2: it or leave it. Um,
0: but I, I definitely appreciated the, the feedback I was getting from them.
2: Why choose black and white? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. Um, So,
0: I am a bit of a film nerd, (laughs) and uh, I'm a a huge Arthur Lipset fan, who was, uh, he, you know, he worked with the NFB in the 1960s, and in fact, he made a film called Very Nice, Very Nice, and that film was all shot in black and white, Mm. and I don't know, I wanted to sort of pay homage to that, but also, yeah, I just... I love black and white. It's funny. I have a seven-year-old daughter, and we're showing her like old Frankenstein movies, like all the black and white <laughs> stuff. And whenever I'm like, "Okay, yeah, we're gonna watch another black and white film," she sort of moans, and, <laughs> and I'm like, "But, but I make black and white films, Rowan," and, and then yeah. she she comes along to it, but. Um, you know, further to that, I'm also like a big, uh, Tarkovsky fan mm-hmm. and in a lot of his films, um, you know, he transitions and plays with black and white and color throughout the film. And so, you know, I just wanted to see what that would do, especially, you know, I don't want to reveal the ending of the film, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. you know, to see how that transition happens and what sort of, a uh, effect that has mm-hmm. on on audiences.
2: Cool. You chose to tell uh, your own story. How and why did you choose to tell the story you did about the water, about the community, and about yourself?
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, just before that, I want to say I really appreciate that, uh, I really appreciate your film, Connor. Like, I love 16 and I too am a film buff, so miigwech for your film. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thanks. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, a part of the process of making uh, this film. Uh, um, I My previous film that was um, shot up here in my community um, was focused around water. It's called Into Water. Mm-hmm. Um, and we shot last summer and I, I, I felt that I really wanted to continue that. I wanted to continue creating in my community and I wanted to continue sharing the stories around uh, Lake Nipissing. Uh, which is what sort of the focal point of my community. Um, And so a a part of this was documenting uh, my sort of, you know, return to my community during this pandemic Um, and sort of reconnecting uh, with the water, the land, and just sort of uh, going deeper into what I have grown up with. Um, the lake, the park, the school, train tracks, the smell of sweet grass when you first walk mm. down the road, mm. all those things. Um, and so I wanted to put that to film. Um, and I also wanted to push myself. And this was the greatest, the best opportunity because I don't, uh, I'm <laughs> afraid of, I have a, I had a huge fear of water when I was a kid. I don't know how to swim, Um, and I'm always reluctant to do those things, so it was the perfect time to document me going into the water, me kayaking for the first time, um, and exploring what is in the heart of this lake.
2: You can't swim. No. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It's a very uh, beautiful film. The shots of the water are great. The sound of the water, just the sound of that water, which you talk about, about the healing power of water in your film as well. Yeah, for
1: sure. Uh, And, and, you know, on a, on a sort of personal filmmaker level, like one of my goals, I really love like very elemental films that are very tactile with their sound. Mm. Um, Not a lot of, not a lot of music, just letting the environment engulf Mm. the viewer Mm. and give them the experience of the environment. Um, And So I just wanted to give that, you know, obviously water is healing. And I find that uh, a lot of the response of the film has been that it is very, it has this sort of um, calming, sort of um, calming quality to it um, Mm -hmm. with the sound of the water and hearing Mm -hmm. it all the way through.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, the other nice thing about that is that that's all you hear is the water. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You just get that really pure, nice sound of the lapping water. And it's just so calming and and healing, like you said. But you get some really beautiful shots of that that calm water on the lake. And of course, the clearness, Uh, you're you're walking in there, bare feet on rocks, which can sometimes hurt. You give it a real calming feel. Is that what you're going for?
1: Yeah, I I I I feel like I really was. Um uh it, there was one point in the editing process um when there were just sort of like five shots of water all up against each other. Mm. And I was just like like I don't know. I mean my maybe it was just like my film school brain that was like, there must be something different. <laughs> but um everyone around me was like, No, 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 just take another look at it. And then I just like really just like chilled out and looked at it. And I was like, wow, all those shots are different. Like the texture, the quality, the movement of the water, it's always different. Um, And so through that process of everyone around me helping me like see the, helping them, helping me see the beauty of my, of this Lake. um, Yeah. Helped me reach that goal of, Mm. uh, of a calming
2: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those two coordinates, or one of those two, and then listen on your device of choice, as well as ELMNT FM. you listen right across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to have on the show with me, I have Connor McNeely and also Cole Forrest. They're both uh, short film uh, producers, Producers that they created for the NFB, and it's for a project called the Curve. And you guys are in there with a, a number of other films as well.
0: Yeah, there's uh, there's so many films. I mean i I was going to ask Cole a question if that's all right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> sure, by all means. <laughs> well,
0: I was just, I was just wondering uh, how long it took you to make this film, and if if it was different than previous films. Because for me this was sort of like the shortest turnaround time ever for a film I've made. And you were talking about editing and all these water shots. And, and what I like to do when I'm editing is, is do some edits and then walk away from the project for sometimes it's like weeks or months and then come back to it. But I'm wondering in your experience if you, felt, uh, if you ever felt rushed with this one. Um, you know, I think it took me
1: back to film school. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very like a year and a bit out of film school. Um, but, um, it took me back to that very rigorous process. And so it was a bit of a wake up call, like, whoa, okay. We have like a certain amount of time to do this in and sort of tight deadlines. And I guess that's what film school preps you for those professional deadlines. But, uh, I definitely felt, uh, I definitely felt the crunch, but I think the best thing to do is just like, Keep calm under that pressure, you know? It yeah.
2: Down. Yeah. So Cole, when did you film this? What time of year?
1: Um that's a great question. I think it was uh late yeah, late July. Um and then pickups in early August.
0: Connor? Um mine was shot in Oh boy. I think it was June. But I'm. Uh, there seems to be a gap in my brain right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's quite. That is quite understandable, and it's probably to do with the pandemic. I'm. I'm sure that a lot of people feel that way. Time is is so messed up these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And your story with your brother uh, uh, talks directly to that. Um, you know, which is really interesting. Connor, very present. Your your film. What was the one thing you took away from what your brother was saying? There are so many things. I mean, you know, he is my little
0: brother, and we've lived, you know, we obviously grew up together, and, you know, he's one of my best friends, and...
2: Uh, when he said about being present, and that's the name of your film, Very Present, mm-hmm. uh, and focused, and that helped him with his healing, and, yeah. and made him feel, you know, like there was there was something going on, uh, that's what really stood out to me.
0: Yeah, no, it's... Um, it's true though. I mean, they talk or people, you know, there's a lot in the news now about going for walks and the mm-hmm. healing power of, of being, you know, maybe in a forest type setting or just getting your feet moving or exercise and and how that allows the body to sort of, and the mind to to take focuses away from sort of bad things that are going on whether that be the pandemic or yeah. in his case the arrest and stuff yeah. but um you know last just really quickly last week I redid my, the roof of my house and, and I got some buddies to help along with Riley and, and the entire time he was on the roof, <laughs> I was like, do you feel very present now? And then I was like, we're going to film the sequel to the, because he was up on the roof schlepping these shingles around and Man. you know, without a harness. Uh, what? And, uh, oh yeah. Geez. And I was like, do you feel very present? <laughs> you and better feel it, pretty present. Cause we, yeah, we were all, uh, we were all chirping him. It was, it was a joke throughout the entire process. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now you, you just talked about the walks in the forest and get outside and and, and those kind of things, and, and 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 that, of course, was what else he mentioned about going to Smoky Lake and for his yeah. recovery. I, I want to jump over uh, to to Cole and his film because both your films have, have a lot of nature in them. Of course, uh, Cole, yours is, is all around the water and, and being out, outdoors and, and your experience with that healing process, because there is healing in, in these things. What do you see, Cole, as that connection between healing and, and this pandemic? Uh,
1: yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, I, I think um, coming back here in my own experience you know, I, I wanted to, my, my, my girlfriend and I are both from Nipissing. Mm. Uh, it's our community and um, us traveling back up to North Bay, you know, taking all the precautions before coming back up here to Nipissing um, and getting here. It was like, we were, you know, we're coming to a, a safe place. Um, and I like to, mm. you know, I know that not everyone who is indigenous um, can see sees their community as a safe place. But Mm. uh, I I, I like to think of Nipissing as a, as a safe place and coming up here, you know, getting out of, you know, when I was in Toronto, I I don't think I left my apartment for like 90 days. Like I, I mean, I went out early morning and at night and never Mm. left um, and was sort of in the radius of my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so to come up here to feel the quiet, like in my, in my heart, in my mind, and to just breathe the fresh air mm. of your community, I think that in itself is healing. And mm-hmm. this film just sort of helped me explore that more.
2: Okay. So I'll ask this one last question to each of you. What is the takeaway that you were hoping that people viewing your films would have? Cole?
1: I, well, that's a great question. Um, I think it goes back to when I was in film school. And I was prepping my last film that was shot here my d p michael yari davidson shout out m g d he um he he looked at me and he said, Cole, like I want this film to feel like we're in Nipissing. everyone who sees it is in nipissing, mm. and that's just that's stuck with me ever since then that was <laughs> like, okay, when I make a film in nipising." <laughs> In my community, I want people to feel like they're there with me. <laughs> So that's, you know, I, I want them to feel like they're there with me. Okay. okay. And I just want them to enjoy the common presence of Lake Nipissing. Mm.
2: Yeah. Okay. And Connor?
0: I'd say with my film, I want people to take away, you know, a feeling of hope mm. that um, especially... You know for us as indigenous people there 's oftentimes especially in in mainstream media lots of negative um, dark stories but you know i I do think that that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, um, and there is you know lots of lots of beauty in 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 darkness and stuff and that was part of you know again I don't want to give away the end of the film but partly why I chose to end the film the way I did just to show that Riley my brother he's um <clears throat> he's overcome a lot and and he's moved he's moving on and my family is moving on uh and yeah so it's 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 about hope and and growth and and like I say getting stronger
2: mm. you know mm. Okay, great, guys. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. It's been really a pleasure speaking with both of you, as well as uh, thanks for making the films that you did, because they both uh, do the things I think that you, you just stated. There is hope. There is a sense uh, of time. There is a sense of uh, healing, um, and you both do that in, in of course, both different stories, approaching it from different ways. And taking and thanks, uh, Cole, for taking us to up to uh, Lake Nipissing. And uh, and allowing us to be a part of you there, and Connor, likewise, thanks for taking us into the story of your brother and allowing us to share that and see inside something and and show us that you know while we're stuck in this pandemic, uh, we all have our stories. They're all continuing, and like you said, there is some hope at the end of the of the tunnel there. Mm-hmm. Hi hi. All right, oh. guys. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that was sweet. All right. Uh, yeah no that was good i just wanted to add to
0: cole yeah i i uh i've watched your film twice now it's great man it's like very (laughs) uh very very calming as as you were saying Thanks. I literally watched yours right before
2: this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <That is> nice. <laughs> that is nice. All right, guys. Thanks again. I have I'll, been speaking with Connor McNally, and he is the creator of Very Present. It's a six-minute six film, and it's about how does prolonged confinement shape our experience of time? As well as uh, Cole Forrest, his film is Nibising, and uh, he took us on a bit of a different story, and he looks at uh, it from sort of he's afraid that he would not see his community again. So he leaves Toronto, he goes to North Bay, where he confronts his fears and reconnects with his ancestors and his community. So you can catch both those films on the NFB project called The Curve. If you go to the NFB uh, uh, film site, uh, you can find out more about those there. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element, Element, Element FM.
2: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNT-FM, and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right across the country. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show... Environmental Defense's Plastic Program Manager, Ashley Wallace. And uh, Ashley is here to talk to us today about the recent announcements from uh, uh, Ottawa and Ontario uh, regarding the banning on single-use plastics, plastic bags, straws, cutlery, those kind of things that are going to end at the end of 2021. And uh, so, Ashley, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So is it a strange time to introduce something like this as we're in the middle of of a pandemic?
3: You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that, you know, plastic pollution has been a growing concern for decades and it will continue to be a growing concern for decades to come. Um, it's true that the pandemic has led to an overall increase in single-use plastic items. Um, and notwithstanding personal protective equipment, mm. a lot of those single-use items are actually not necessary in the fight against COVID. Um, and I think that it's really important that we don't lose sight of other critical environmental issues at this time. And we do continue to address issues like plastic pollution and climate change in parallel with um our efforts to tackle the pandemic
2: this is a slightly off topic, perhaps, but as you were talking there and about single use plastics i couldn 't help but what was going through my head was all the images I remember from seeing of of plastics in the environment and, and specifically what I remember seeing is things like you know the the plastic rings being stuck over birds heads. Uh, the plastic rings that are thrown away in the water, uh, and all those items that get thrown into the, the lakes, the, the oceans that uh, float around, and animals sometimes uh, think they're food, they ingest them, uh, that creates problems for them. Do you think that, by and large, we as, as a, a population are aware now of, of what we're doing, that, that those images have reached people enough?
3: I, I do think that there has been a huge um, kind of conscious raising as it comes to plastics, especially over the last several years. Um, environmental defense has been working on the plastics issue in some capacity for about five years. Uh, but really in the last two to three years, um, we've seen federal governments um, around the world kind of move to tackle the issue. And a lot of that has been because the public I think has um, seeing these images and seeing, I mean, who hasn't seen that video of the turtle with the straw in its nose? Mm. Um, and I think that those those images and stories have really resonated with the public and the public is, is demanding change.
2: You know, I, a story I remember, uh, this is a personal story of mine, if you don't mind me telling this quickly. Uh, a number of years ago, I was on the west coast of Vancouver Island and uh my i have family out there and my sister my sister's husband was working in a logging camp and it was on the west coast of vancouver island it was a fly in or or get uh, community a logging camp you couldn't get there except by plane and boat and uh she said i'm going to visit do you want to come for a few days and i thought wow that that would be pretty cool to get into a logging camp on the west coast of the of the island and uh and i said sure and i was I went down and I was walking down the, the 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 bay, and I saw some stuff on the on the shore, and I I thought what what is that? And it was garbage, and I thought it was a little different looking as well. And um, and when I got there, the the items, aside from being some of, some plastic items, um, had had Oriental writing on them, and I just thought, wow! It, it just goes to show you how far and wide these things can. Can uh, float, and I'm sure some of these items were were from the ocean, not necessarily Japan or or, or the Orient. Uh, they were probably uh, disposed of off of ships that were that were out either, uh, you know, um, uh, fishing or or doing those kind of things. But I just thought it was really interesting that we do see these things, and we don't consider how how far and wide they can they can uh, travel.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think also after, um, the tsunami in Japan back in 2011, uh, British Columbia actually reported for several years later that they were getting, um, bits of of garbage and plastic and, and other kind of debris on their shores, um, because of kind of that huge event, which would have washed a lot of garbage off mm-hmm. the land. Mm-hmm. You're right that some of it is probably from ships and cruise ships and stuff like that. Um, but our oceans are all connected. And I think, you know, the other thing that that reminds me of, and maybe this is a, a slight tangent and maybe you were going to get there, but um, a lot of people talk about the plastic pollution issue as really being an issue associated with these like 10 rivers in the world, which are mostly in Asia and Africa. Um, and so that becomes a bit of a justification for, you know, well, we don't really need to act here. We have recycling systems. Like, we're, we're doing okay. This is a problem of those countries. Um, but the thing that people don't realize is that up until very recently, uh, Canada, the U.S., and many countries in Europe were sending huge amounts of so-called recyclables mm-hmm. to China for processing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in 2018, China stopped accepting essentially our garbage. <laughs> yeah. Um, and instead we've been sending a huge amount of waste to Malaysia and the Philippines. And so a lot of that garbage coming out of those rivers, you talked about seeing stuff that had potentially Japanese writing on it in, in BC. Well, a lot of the stuff that's coming out of rivers in Asia has, uh, English on it and, you know, made in Toronto, made in California because it's our garbage that is ending up on the other side of the world. Um, so this really is a global issue that needs global action. Um, and part of that means that Canada does need to step up and take responsibility for the huge amounts of plastics um, that we consume and uh, really probably to reduce the amount of plastic we're using overall. And then on top of that, do a better job of managing what we can't
2: avoid. Yeah, Ashley, you mentioned there that uh, our, our oceans are all connected, that, that word connected. Do you think that we are finally getting to the point, uh, again, as a, as a population to understand that this, you, you can't just throw something away and think that it's no longer your problem because it's not in your backyard, that this whole world is our backyard, that this whole world is our house?
3: Oh, I mean, I, I love that. And I it's my sincere hope that people are waking up to that. Um, I do think that, unfortunately, sometimes um, humans have a tendency to really see themselves as outside of the environment. You know, we don't like to see ourselves as animals. We're kind of we exist outside of ecosystems. Um but yeah, the truth is, is that the entire wor- earth is our backyard and we have a responsibility to take care of it, not just so we don't have to see more videos of whales dying mm. with stomachs full of plastic bags, but also because um, this is going to impact us. If our uh, ecosystems or our animals are dying and our ecosystems are being compromised, that will have negative impacts on human health and and in addition to that we're actually learning that um humans ourselves are now full of plastic the water we drink the air we breathe mm. sea salt um we we are ingesting plastics constantly yeah. and um, that's a, a new area of research because really up until this point we've mostly been looking at well, what are the impacts in the environment but now that we're realizing this stuff is in us I think in the next 10 years we're probably going to learn that it, it isn't great to be full of little bits of plastic
2: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think so so those microplastics that yeah I've heard that, that being talked about that it's, it is getting and fish are consuming it, and of course we're consuming fish and, and it's just getting into in, into everything like you just said so as As we as we now know that the single use plastics, some of these single use plastics are going to be banned at the end of 2021, uh, such as uh, grocery bags, uh, straws, stir sticks, six pack rings, which is great uh, cutlery and food containers made from hard to recycle plastics. So they're going to be out at the end of 2021, which is great, of course, because there are alternatives to those. And I think that's why the government focused on them, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the um, the, discuss- the discussion paper that the federal government released when they announced the bans, um, they kind of provide a bit of a like decision tree, what they were looking for mm-hmm. when they um, made their ban list. And so they were looking at items that were commonly found in the environment, uh, items that were known to cause harm to um, animals or ecosystems, um, and products that they knew there were alternatives for. Um and so, yeah. I mean, I I personally think that there are other things on that list, uh, or there there should be other things on that list. And there were other materials the government evaluated that I'm not really clear on why they decided not to ban. Um, for example, uh, they decided not to ban hot and cold drink cups, so things like takeaway coffee cups or takeaway soda cups from fast food restaurants. Um, but they decided to ban takeout containers. And we know that both of those items are very challenging to recycle. They're commonly found littered in the environment. Um and there are alternatives available. So um, I'm hoping that we're able to not only get the government to finalize this proposed ban list and, you know, definitely ban these materials by the end of twenty twenty one, but hopefully um push them to add a couple of additional items to the list.
2: Mm-hmm. Ontario also has uh, taken upon itself to expand its recycling program and it it's going to make some changes uh, as well. I believe that's going to be uh filtered in or, or uh, uh, brought in over a number of years about 3 years I think. But the point is that what they what they're, they're saying they want to do is uh, is is move that cost away from the government and put it on to the waste producers. And I think I think that's a great idea um, because I'm hoping that what that will do is 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 have those uh, waste producers start saying, hey, uh, well, let's be more efficient here. What can we do to be good to the environment? But even though they might be doing that, are they going to be potentially lazy about it and say, "Okay, we have to do this, you know, but let's just pass it on to our consumers?
3: Yeah, so the proposed regulation that Ontario put forward related to the blue box um, is suggesting this thing called extended producer responsibility, where the producers of materials are the ones that operate and pay for recycling systems. And you're right that the idea is that that would incentivize them to either redesign um, the, the product or packaging entirely so that it's easier to collect, easier to recycle, or maybe reusable or refillable or mm. doesn't even generate waste mm-hmm. like that would be fantastic um but extended producer responsibility only really works if the government also sets and enforces really high um, waste diversion targets so that would be making producers responsible for let's say getting uh ensuring at least 80 percent of the plastic that they sell or 90 percent of the plastic they sell uh stays out of landfills and incinerators um, unfortunately, the province has proposed for plastics only a 40% diversion target for flexible plastics like bags and um, uh, like saran wrap and stuff like that. And a 60% target for rigid plastics like shampoo bottles. And so the government's basically saying, hey, it's okay if for flexible past plastics, the majority of this stuff is still going to landfills and incinerators. Um, and their argument for that has been that, you know, producers say it would be, they're barely recycling this stuff now and to do anything more than 40 is just too hard to achieve. And I would say, well, if if you can't actually manage this material and the best you can do is that 60% of it is still ending up in landfills, and incinerators in the environment, then we shouldn't be using it.
2: Mm, right. And, and, <laughs> that's a good point. And the other thing I thought of is, at what point will it will it come to when we say, well, if, then if you can't make it, you know, eighty or hundred percent recyclable, then you you're you won't be able to sell your products. I guess you know.
3: I think that that would be. I mean, yeah, I would love to see that. I think that. Businesses have been kind of passing on these externalities like they 've been able to package stuff in materials that can 't be collected can 't be recycled can 't be reused, that are cheap for them to use that mm-hmm. allow them to kind of make their products available in tiny containers um, in larger quantities. And they haven't had to deal with the costs of managing the material, like through recycling through curbside recycling systems. That's been a cost that's been borne Mm -hmm. by taxpayers and municipalities. And they haven't had to deal with the impacts on the environment. Like there has been no fee for the pollution they have caused in the environment. And, um, Obviously, when you have a system like that, it just incentivizes them to continue to create this cheap disposable packaging, um, which, as we know is is causing great harm in the environment and potentially in the future will learn to us. <laughs>
2: Yeah, now that brings up another couple of questions. But before we get there, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E L M N T F M, fm and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is the Environmental Defenses Plastic Program Manager, Ashley Wallace. We are talking about recycling plastic. We are talking about the, the uh, ban that will be taking place at the end of 2021 on a certain single-use plastics uh, that the government has uh, put in place, as well as the new Ontario uh, recycling program that they are going to be initiating over the next couple of years and what, what that's going to mean. Ashley, you just talked about basically the responsibility of, of business and their their lack of responsibility that they have not had to deal with in terms of creating their their products which have they have profited from at at no risk to themselves for the waste that they are creating and that the government has been picking that up and they've been doing this for a long time you know it it, it even you know we could go beyond that and look at the huge profits that say oil companies well oil is plastic right and and these companies have been been making things for decades, and reaping the profit without the the necessary, uh, without looking at it responsibly and saying, we should take some responsibility. Now, we're getting to the point where everyone has to look at this, as we talked about at the top of the show. This is the only planet we have at the moment that we can live on, and we're now finding out that it's getting pretty small all of a sudden because of the waste we are generating.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think that, um, you know, you bring up oil companies as well. And you're right. Plastic is the 99 percent of plastic is made from oil or fossil fuel resources. Um, and, the, and the further kind of insult to injury is that we tend to subsidize this industry like government heavily subsidizes the oil industry. Um, and even back in 2018, when the Canadian federal government announced that it planned to use um at the time, it's G7 presidency to kind of take leadership on the plastic issue. A week later, they announced that they were giving millions of dollars to um, Nova Chemical, which is a petrochemical company, um, to do some petrochemical development in Sarnia, which manufactures plastic. Um, so I do think that there is sometimes... Obviously, there is a responsibility of business and it is good to see um, regulations coming into force, like the extended producer responsibility piece in Ontario that will put some of the financial burden back onto industry. But I think at the same time, we need um, government to, yes, move ahead with things like this plastic ban, but also to get a lot more serious about um, what kind of industry they're funding and to, um, you know, support the transition away from fossil fuels and also away from single use disposable materials um, and to enable this circular economy not just where we are doing a really good job of collecting disposable forks, recycling them and turning them into disposable forks, because even recycling is an energy intensive process Mm. with material loss, especially with plastics. Plastics can only be recycled a certain number of times before they're so degraded, they need to be landfilled. Um, And actually like changing the way that incentivizing businesses to to provide products in different ways. And, um, you know, and just this week, for example, or I guess last week was waste reduction week. And um, I'm not going to say that it's a perfect system yet. I haven't gotten into all the details, but I will say that I was quite excited to see that Tim Hortons had announced that it was going to be looking at um, a refillable deposit system for some of their takeout food. So instead of you getting a disposable cup that you have your coffee and throw away, they would be providing a cup that you could pay a small deposit on. You would go away and enjoy your coffee, and then you could bring the cup back and get your deposit back, and those cups would all be sterilized and then reused by other customers. And Mm. that is more of a system, the direction we need to go where we're reducing um, our single-use consumption altogether and instead moving towards these refill and reuse systems.
2: You know, on that same note, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was, I, I know that Starbucks started a program where they had a cup that looked exactly like their takeout a plastic uh, uh, paper cup that you could purchase for about a, a dollar. And it was it was one that you could keep bringing back and using. And I purchased one of those. And it was great because I don't know if they still do this. But at the time, uh, every time you brought your cup back and it was your cup, they would take 10 cents off of your purchase as well. I I thought that was a great program. And I, I was, you know, I just don't know why more people don't take advantage of those things when we know our environment is at risk.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's actually a pretty common sort of initiative that a lot of cafes offer when you bring mm-hmm. your own cup. Um, obviously, as somebody who tries to walk the talk, I also almost always have a coffee cup in my bag just in case I need mm. a caffeine fix and don't want to take a <laughs> disposable cup. Um, but I I do think that one of the things that COVID has kind of brought to the surface um, is a little bit more of a concern around sanitation. Mm. And Mm -hmm. uh, the medical uh, community has been quite clear um, that the you do not need to have kind of single use disposable cups and bags etc to protect yourself from covid the virus is really thought to spread through like person to person breathing and and aerosol not through surface contact mm. but that being said i think people are a lot more nervous now about the idea of you bringing like a container that you had your mouth on and putting it on a counter and asking somebody else to refill right. it um and so instead of seeing this as kind of like a threat to the movement what i actually see it as is a huge opportunity to kind of institutionalize these refill systems. So in the Tim Hortons model, instead of relying on consumers to clean their cup properly and then bring it back to be refilled, right. they're taking that on. Yeah. You return the cup used, it'll be sterilized and cleaned and then available to another consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we are seeing systems like that start to pop up in other um, food service sectors with takeout food and takeout containers. Mm-hmm. And um, there's an Loop is a company that's actually working with Tim Hortons on this thing and they also, uh, have been working with some of the, uh, like large brand holders like P&G and Unilever Mm. on a similar system in the US where you could get things like ice cream and toothpaste and, um, cleaning supplies in reusable stainless steel containers that would then be received back by Loop uh, sterilized, refilled, and given to new consumers. So right. a huge opportunity, I think, to have those systems grow.
2: You, you know, we talked about the oil companies a little bit earlier, and you talked about how we subsidize these, these businesses. Uh, you also talked about uh, the government just recently giving us, uh, some money to a company in the Sarnia area to make more plastic. My question is, when we talk about plastic, uh it sounds like there's two sides to this. And what I mean by that is, do oil companies only make single-use plastic when they are producing plastic? Or are they the same companies that can make alternatives from the plastic? Or is that a complete separate uh, recyclable uh, business where the, the single-use plastics or the plastics that we throw away and that are then recycled are, are turned back into something that's a completely separate Uh, business from the oil companies altogether?
3: So I think, um, I mean, it it depends. The oil companies, it sounds like, are starting to get more interested in involving themselves in the recycling sector um, as they see kind of this pressure to move away from single-use plastics and therefore potentially, like if we really do move away from single-use plastics and what we're doing is reusing or recycling the same materials that are already out there over and over and over again, we would stop using or greatly reduce the amount of oil we're consuming Mm -hmm. to produce plastic, right? Mm -hmm. And so it would make sense that they would want to maybe transition a little bit away from that kind of primary production and more to recycling systems. Um, What we have seen is that Some of the companies like Dow, for example, which is a a petrochemical company, have been promoting an idea of like chemical or advanced recycling. And so that is a little bit challenging because they're like, okay, well, what we can do is we can take all the hard to recycle plastics and we can put them through these complicated processes that instead of just breaking them down into little plastic pellets and then melting them and making new things, which is how recycling works right now, mechanical recycling, we will put them through chemical processes and actually break them down to like their original polymers and then in theory use those to produce new plastics. So it's like a more intensive process. Um, and I think they're seeing that more as an opportunity for growth. The the challenges that um, to date chemical recycling or advanced recycling has never been scaled up and like, it hasn't been shown to be um, financially or energetically possible to scale it up. Like it takes extra energy to put mm. uh, plastics through this process. It uses additional fossil fuels to kind of like break down the the bonds and the plastic and turn it back into its original polymers. There's huge amounts of um, energy loss and use, and it's expensive. <laughs> mm. um, and so if we did end up scaling up, chemical recycling, it probably would still require a significant amount of oil input to run those systems, um, which would mean that it wouldn't really be a solution. Like, I think really the goal needs to be not just to keep plastic in the economy in a circle, but to also ensure that that circular economy is low carbon and non-toxic, um, and I think that really the only way to achieve that is for us to dramatically reduce the amount of single use plastics we're using, mm. which is why this federal ban is is such an important step. And um really, uh, it needs to be, I think, prioritized even more in the government strategy.
2: And are you are you encouraged that that will happen?
3: I mean, if you look at the rest of the discussion paper that the federal government announced, I think, understandably, the bans got a lot of attention um, and the bans were something that they had committed to. So I get it. Um, but a lot of the rest of the conversation is focused on improving recycling. Um, and as I, I mentioned earlier, you know, recycling plastics is just it's not really possible at the level we need it to be. Um and i think you know recently there's been a couple of pieces that have come out from various uh, media outlets in the us and canada about the the lie of recycling that was essentially sold to us by the plastics industry mm. you know back in the 60s people were concerned about all the plastics that were building up and industry's response was like we'll roll out these comprehensive recycling systems but there's documentation to show that they knew right from the get go that recycling was never going to be um economically uh like it wouldn't make sense economically. And the materials that we produce now are so much more complex and in such a great volume that our systems just can't handle them. Um, recycling works way better when you're recycling metal and paper and glass. It's not so good at handling plastics.
2: Well, why do those comments and promises sound so familiar?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Please give us a, a license to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: Um You know, the other thing, of course, that it, oil companies that I've heard recently, because there is a definite change from automobiles that are uh, run on oil and gas, they're moving away to, to of course, electric vehicles. Um, I heard that oil companies are starting to focus more on plastics and trying to sell those plastics to developing countries. And they're starting to lobby these countries to reverse uh, uh, some of the, some of the, um, uh, laws they have in place so that they can start doing that to these countries. And I, I thought, you know, I, I, have you heard similar things to that?
3: I have. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's the market for oil in the ways we currently use it for energy, um, are obviously decreasing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the oil industry is looking for another way to sell their product and plastic is their opportunity for massive growth. Um, I think in addition to hearing what you've heard about them trying to kind of push the idea of selling plastics to um, developing countries, I've also heard about some trade agreements. Like I think the U.S. is trying to negotiate a trade agreement with um, a country in Africa where they wanted them to, right now they have kind of a ban on accepting plastic garbage from other countries, mm-hmm. but they wanted to reverse that ban as part of the trade agreement so that they could mm. have a place to send all of their garbage, <laughs> yeah. um, which is a huge issue with, I mean, it's environmental racism to think it's okay just to send uh, garbage from developed countries to poor racialized yeah. countries and let them deal with the toxic right. Right. impact.
2: Ashley, we're running out of time. Anything uh, on your mind that you really feels important to get out there just before we end our conversation?
3: Um, I think that you know we are. It definitely feels like we're at a critical time right now when it comes to plastic policy, um, and a huge amount of that is because people have been so engaged in the issue. Um, and I think if people are listening to this show and they're like, "Yeah, you know, I'm sold. I want to see more action on plastics. I think we need to have less of this stuff in our lives." I would encourage you to reach out to you know your elected officials, whether it be your provincial member of parliament or your federal member of parliament. Um, let them know that you're concerned and you are supportive of, uh, you know, regulations and laws that hold producers accountable and that keep this stuff out of our environment, um, because I think they get a lot of negative comments, but they don't always get uh, support for Uh, initiatives like government i think government gets a lot of negative comments don't do this don't do this Mm. they don't necessarily hear (laughs) from the public how supportive we are of it so let them know and let them know that you want them to do more
2: (laughs) great you know I, i think the other uh people that you might want to uh let know or or perhaps get on your side is the youth of course we all know that the youth are very uh concerned about the environment well Plastics, recycling, all of this kind of thing is part of the environment. And if it continues to be uh, a growing concern, then it's going to be, if it isn't already, just as huge uh, of of an issue as uh, our... Our, our climate uh, changing going on at the moment, and, and the crisis we find ourselves in there. And they seem to be pretty good at getting the point out there, as we've seen in the last little bit uh, prior to the, the 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 onset of COVID. And I'm certainly hoping that they will continue their push to have climate uh, put back in the in the uh, forefront of our of our sight uh, as we move forward as well.
3: I agree. Yeah, bring on the youth. Feel very inspired by them, but also don't force them to shoulder all the burden. Oh, God. Oh,
2: no, 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 no. i
3: I know that isn't what you were saying, but I'm also very acutely aware that we made maybe not an ideal situation for them, and so we definitely have a responsibility to yeah, make right. sure we get better. Good point. Good point. Good point. <laughs>
2: Ashley, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about these really, really important issues. Thanks so much for having me, David. You bet. That's the Environmental Defense Plastics Program Manager, Ashley Wallace. We've been talking to her. About uh, the ban on uh, single-use plastics and the changes to the Ontario recycling program that are going to be taking effect, uh, well, at the end of 2021, uh, single-use plastics such as plastic grocery bags, straws, stir sticks, six-pack rings, uh, cutlery and food containers, they're all going to be gone because they are hard items to recycle and there are alternatives that people can use for those. And the uh, recycling program uh, that the Ontario government is implementing is going to take place over the next three years. But uh, you can make comments. You have up until, I believe, uh, the end of December. If you want to make comments about that, uh, I'm sure you can find that out uh, by going to the Ontario government site. That's the Moment of Truth for today. We want to thank you for listening on Moment of Truth and Element FM. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element, Element, Element FM.